And we are super psyched to welcome our newest sponsor, Thunder Road Guitars. Thunder Road Guitars is the Pacific Northwest best source for premium, new, used, and vintage guitars, amplifiers, and pedals. Online or in their Seattle, that's West Seattle, or Portland stores. You'll find fantastic customer service and a terrific vibe. I know because I'm in there a lot. Grab a cup of coffee, swing on in, don't spill your coffee, and check it all out. And now if you use code TOURSTORIES10, you can get 10% off at thunderroadguitars.com. Yes, that's me playing guitar. Hello, big news from our friends over at DistroKid. They now have an app. This app works on iOS and Android, of course, and it's available in the Apple Store and Google Play Stores and all the stores where you buy apps. Go check it out. It's got a lot of cool features. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties. Awesome. You can withdraw from the app via push notifications. A little dangerous for me, but rad. Anyways, go check it out. It's all at distrokid.com app. And don't forget, you can still get 30% off your DistroKid account by going to distrokid.com VIP slash tour stories. Have a great one. We continue to celebrate our friends and partners over at Isotope, and we got some big news for you. The gold standard of audio repair, RX11, is coming in May. In the meantime, you can buy RX10 now on sale and get RX11 absolutely free when it's released. Tour Story listeners get 10% off by using code FRET10. That's F-R-E-T-1-0. All at isotope.com. That's I-Z-O-T-O-P-E.com. Hi, Lyra. Hi, Caulfield. How's it going? Hello. Good. Great. How's it going with you? Pretty good. I'm here in Seattle where it's hot, as the news is telling the world. Where are you guys? We are in Lawrence, Kansas. I don't know if you can see our pennant oh, on I can. the wall. Oh, I Yes. <laughs> Stormy and windy. All right. Lawrence, Kansas. Are you Midwesterners? No. Well, honorary. now we are. Yeah, honorary. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and uh, I, yeah, I want to hear that story a little bit later. And I also want to talk about this um, wonderful new record you have here. Good Living is Coming for You. I love that title. And it's coming out, uh, what is that, June 30th on Feel It Records and Sub Pop Records. That's right. Killer. First, I, I want to learn a little bit about uh, how you two started collaborating together and, and um, oh, you know, you, what your musical background is that, that brought you together. Well, we met in college in um, in Arkansas. Uh, we both went to a tiny liberal arts school called Hendrix, and we met in the basement of the music building there. We just immediately, like upon contact, started a band. Mm. It was Slim Pickens. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. Yeah. But I don't know. Fate kind of, you know, pushed us together. Yeah. And... Yeah. Yeah, we've been making music together ever since, since like uh, 2008. And were you studying music? I was, yeah. yeah. I was a vocal performance major, so I was studying um, classical vocal performance at the time. Mm. But uh, Caulfield, however, was not a music major. Yeah, I fancied uh, primitivism and oh. I couldn't. 
I couldn't be schooled. <laughs> they couldn't. They couldn't contain. You cannot me. tame a wild. <laughs> no, I just wasn't interested. I, 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 I was an English major. You were, and but were you also playing music at the time? Oh yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I came from not a music school background. I, I, I grew up in it. I, I was gigging with punk bands when I was like thirteen. Oh, you were okay. Yeah. Where was that? Uh, in Austin, Texas, where that sort of thing oh. was possible to do. Playing in punk bands when you were thirteen. Yeah, it was a different time. I was thinking how uh, in the audience, that was pretty normal. Um, my parents would drop me off at the club, and I wasn't the only one at, yeah. at that age. And and now I don't think that happens as much. Have you always played guitar? I started off on bass, and I was just forced to learn drums in high school because I was the only one who was vaguely mm. interested in, in guitar yeah. as well. And you started recording yourself at an early age, too. Yeah, that's that's right. Oh, you did? Yeah. Well, I love your guitar playing. One of my favorite guitar players is Ricky Wilson. Yes. Uh, and that's not a direct comparison to your playing, but I'm not much of a guitarist. I can kind of play it. But I, in a fantasy world, I want a lesson from Ricky Wilson. But maybe I'll just ask you to give yeah. me a lesson. You don't have to learn. <laughs> that's a good way to put it, right? One note at a time. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, again, um, this new record is... I've been listening to it consistently for about eight days now, and I, it's fun, and uh, I don't use this term very often, but it's a bit of a fist pumper for me. Thank you. But uh, from what I understand, in between this and your last record, Hungry for a Way Out, you've had quite the journey, both physically and uh, I'm assuming, I don't know, maybe emotionally. Um, and I can't, I can't help but think that your mantra might have been good living is coming for us. Tell me a little bit about what happened in between these two records and where you were where you were at when you started working on this one. Well, uh, in 2020, in August of 2020, Hunger for a Way Out came out. And to us, it came out with very little fanfare because we were like firmly ensconced in Caulfield's parents' house in Austin where we had fled from Boston in the wake of the pandemic. Um, because there was no way that we were going to be able to afford rent there anymore with no jobs. Oh, right. yeah. And so um, we, I want to say that we got a practice space in Austin within like a couple of days of getting there once we moved. Uh, and so we immediately started writing for um, however many albums we thought we could eke out. So we wrote a okay. like a, a ton of material. And so we tried to record in, in, when you reach a point of hopelessness you know <laughs> there's nothing to the do productivity comes. There's, there's nothing yeah. else to do when you've like when your head hurts from bashing it against the wall so many times yeah. then you have to like do something else so that's what we did is we just like tried to you know while away the hours of uncertainty by writing and um yeah we tried recording caulfield's parents bathroom while they were working from home upstairs in their <laughs> office and then we um decided that that wasn't working for us so we decamped to marfa for like two weeks to try to find a sanctuary to write and record and that almost worked but didn't work uh -huh. and then we decided we need a space of our own so um around this time uh we uh, Sub Pop reached out to us and they expressed interest. And so we said, yeah, okay, let's work with y'all. That's amazing. Yeah. We couldn't really believe that it was happening. And again, like, cause all of this felt so far removed because we were just, you know, in this, you know, guest bedroom in his parents' house 
still the just milieu of childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What a weird feeling. Enervating. Yeah. Weird. We're being signed to Sub Pop and trying to figure out if our <laughs> if we should do music life or if we should somehow um wait it out and then try to return to our careers. <laughs> we feel as if our careers right. have been severed during COVID. Right. I just wanted to back up to Marfa. I'm fascinated with Marfa. I finally oh, yeah. went there a year ago. But um, right. tell me a little bit about when you were there. Well, we were there, I think it was like April of 2021. And it was beautiful. And it was already very hot, like 90 degrees. But it was a dry mm-hmm. heat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it And it's just so it wasn't super overrun with any tourists or anything. Because it's kind of hard to get out there in West Texas. It's It's very remote. Yes, it is. And um, there aren't any major highways, but it was beautiful. And everybody there was, you know, really committed to living there and working on their whatever art practice they had going. And um, the the terrain of Marfa is very alien. Like It reminded us or it reminded me anyway, a little bit of Iceland, just sort of yeah. how bare mm. it was and then how serene it was in that kind of just like scarcity of foliage and just the purest starlit nights uh right so the, gorgeous the near canyon topography mm-hmm. the reality of distortion field that surrounds the city mm-hmm. it's it's funny because there's all these like indie bands just like recording everywhere this is a city with like three streets and it's yeah. it's like it's it's funny you just like walk down you're like how's your album <laughs> i know like, yeah, we ran, into, we ran into um a recording engineer who we had met in austin just through mm-hmm. happenstance, like we ran into him at one of the like few restaurants that was there, like this really great like wood fired pizza place, and we're just like, mm-hmm. wait, what are you doing here? <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it was really beautiful, but the space that we were in wasn't quite conducive to recording because um, it used to be like the Marfa Film Society. They used to have screenings in this place. So the I guess he's like on the board of the film society. He rents out this uh, one of the few remaining Adobe um like structures he turned it into Mm. an airbnb and so it has this kind of like corrugated aluminum sort of like lean to sort of wall that um like the whole place is i mean it's you know totally fine to live in but the the sound from the birds that were like really loud outside yeah kept um you know penetrating the birds ruined that recording the the birds ruined that recording basically wow so but it was a really beautiful space. And yeah. um, they had this like really awesome projector uh, and then just one wall that was entirely blank. So we watched like we're cinephiles. And so when we found out about that, we're just like, oh, my God, we can just like do the thing where we project movies and then just get inspired and write and record to them. That's great. And, and just to contextualize and clarify, this is in the depths of COVID. Yeah, this where is still very much one like... doesn't go to a recording studio necessarily. We just signed a multi-album contract, and we were kind of like, "How do we do this?" Yeah. So the the <laughs> this solution is, a very is sort context, of context. Yeah. Yeah. The the solution right. is to you know find like a rental or something. Right. Because yeah, because that's why we were trying to record at home is because again we couldn't go to a, a studio. Our previous yeah. recording space was in Boston, so that was mm-hmm. you know out of the picture so we thought okay if we could just find like a house or something that is all our own that doesn't have any other people then maybe we can you know put our heads together and get some of this material recorded and it was a really good songwriting retreat we found out but we were just we put like so much pressure to have something finished 
And when we didn't, it felt like a really big disappointment. So at that point, when these recordings weren't going to work, we thought, okay, we need to find a place of our own. And so we got an advance from Sub Pop. And so we put that towards a down payment on a church in Ohio. Really? In Lowellville, which is about 20 minutes outside of Youngstown, that, you know, mm-hmm. bustling Midwestern metropolis. Yeah, I've been to Youngstown a few times. <laughs> so you know. Which is kind of interesting. It is. Yeah. It, it yeah. is. Well, especially yeah. like, because Ohio is really cool and it also has a very storied um, musical history um, and punk history. Uh, and so we thought this would be really great. And, yeah. you know, this church is, you know, really beautiful. And the sanctuary part has these, you know, 30 foot ceilings. So it'll be perfect for recording. And so we go like, I think 10 days before we're ready to close on this house mm-hmm. and we visit it and it is totally decrepit and we've been off way more than we could chew because we would have to spend a lot of money to rehab it. And so we backed out of that and then we set our sights on Kansas city at first initially. And Hmm. through that, we found our house here in Lawrence. Okay. What, what more, if if I could just say one more thing, of course, Um, all you want, you just get twisted into these crazy shapes, you know, when you're in creative life after COVID and, uh, you know, no, no diss to sub pop, only gratitude. But you know, you have to figure out what what to do with a very finite amount of money, which most people, you know, when you make an album, you know, you have to self fund it. So you know, well, we only and, have gratitude and here, and especially in yeah. COVID. I mean, it's like if it weren't COVID times, and we had received that advance, I mean, that would go a long ways in a studio. Yeah, I mean, like you could, right. you can, if you self record. Like the question for us was like, how do we buy that cheapest house ever? To uh, yeah just support ourselves and, and, and do this thing. And I don't, I don't understand how bands who have more than two members do it. Well, <laughs> but all that said, I mean, we are incredibly grateful to them for their support and for believing in us because yeah. we were able to find a place that we absolutely love that has an incredible studio space that allowed us to finally um, clear our heads and yeah. just write and write and write and record out. and record and record. There's a there's a little history in Lawrence too, right? Absolutely, Isn't there yeah. some fam- famous writers who live there, right? Burroughs, <laughs> history of surrealism, and and a good post punk history, and emo history, and of course it's close to Kansas City where I was born. Ooh. Oh, not that that's significant, but the I'll most significant. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, all of this yielded this fantastic record, including your current single Eraser, which. When I listen to music, I listen to the whole thing first. I don't concentrate on anything. I just kind of take it in. Usually lyrics are last for me. And when I started listening to the lyrics, immediately I thought you were sort of pointing outward. But then the more I listened to this song and actually some other tunes, it kind of seems reflective. I really ultimately want to know is who or what is Eraser? Um, I think that you definitely hit... Uh, upon something that we worked on with this record in terms of being both reflective and sort of like projecting at the same time, because a lot of these songs we wrote, you know, in heightened state of solitude beyond our already very insular writing practice, because it is just the two of us. And we have established this songwriting relationship over the course of like more than a decade, like, you know, 15 Mm -hmm. years at this point. So 
when you know we were sort of just like cordoned off from the world as everybody was at the time um the the main melody sort of like came to me and i had like a phone demo somewhere of me just like humming it and then playing bass along to it and it went through like a couple of just like really heavy-handed uh rewrites lyrically anyway because like the song itself just took shape in i don't know like 15 minutes mm-hmm. um and then finally, I remember I was just like staring at the paper and Caulfield's like, okay, you have 10 minutes to write this go. <laughs> and I was so like pissed off. And I just like wrote down like what eventually became like these lyrics. And I looked at them and it was in the midst of a very cyclical process of basically the same thing of like flustered and feeling like I'm never going to be able to write something. And then I, you know, write something and I'm happy with it. I'm like, oh. And so, yeah, I feel like there was this foreboding sense of somebody who is kind of like a like a shadow self sort of doppelganger of yours who is going to, you know, infiltrate your your psyche, morph into you and just like take everything away from you. So there's that anxiety. And then there's also to be quite literal, like the sense of like writing and rewriting something and being, you know, your own sort of like the chip on your own shoulder. Yeah, right. Something about Lyra's lyrics. Lyrax. Lyrax. Uh, is that they're really not personal? Like, I, I, I think you really don't write in a diaristic way. Like, you never occupy the first person. But they have, like, a psychological quality. Usually you, like, describe characters or situations that are sort of, like, outside of your POV. Mm-hmm. But, but the way you do it seems to, like, I don't know, accentuate your interior life. That's yeah, that's very generous. Yeah. Thanks. And and that yeah, I, I feel like I don't I don't know the last time that I wrote something like purely from my own point of view. Like I don't I don't really engage with that style of writing. We're not very personalistic. Yeah. I don't know about Yeah, but uh the eraser for me is like a a threatening mentee. Mm-hmm. Or uh I I I I knew a philosopher once, won't name names, rhymes with Shruno Latour. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> who who would bring a, an aid everywhere he went and he would just talk into the air, just like random ideas. And basically the yeah. aid was tasked like a voice memo, just like really? writing everything down. Like he would just like talk into the air. But I was thinking about that, that person who just follows around this philosopher. It's like, he, that person must be learning a lot. Like, I wonder if that philosopher ever feels sort of like threatened by that, that person who is like a living memento. Of right. of their thinking, and yeah, I think I think this album is about like busybodies and trainees and people who are maybe like secretly plotting. Well, and also uh-huh. how to be a busybody when the whole world is still too, you mm-hmm. know. And so just the True. the slow, gradual unraveling of that sort of lizard brain continual energy and being forced mm-hmm. to 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 corral that right. Idle hands for the busybody. Mm-hmm. Not a good situation necessarily. No. Um, cool. Well, uh, with that, I'd like to play Eraser for the people. Sound cool? Yeah. All right, here we go. My
Yay. I love that tune. Thank you. That intro, I can't put my finger on it. I was just thinking about it this morning. It reminds me of like a, a Steve Reich yeah. thing. Very specific, but I just can't place my, it's some modern composition in my head. I was thinking like Terry Riley. Or... Mm, yeah, mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. probably it. Yeah. Um, it's beautiful, the intro. And it has, I mean, for you, I, I'm assuming it has a lot to do with the rest of the song, but it's a little bit of a special piece of the entire song that never occurs again. And to that, I love your production. You have uh, the snack for making the meticulous sound simple. It really, it's like fist pumping. And I'm a kind of an engineer and of course a musician. And it's like, well, this is deeply thoughtful. It's really dynamic. Thanks. I strive for uh, simultaneous primitivism and OCD. Uh Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit about your new studio and and how you track. Well, we started a studio out of our house Mm -hmm. um, because I wanted to record bands again. And you've been doing quite a few albums. Just had somebody here yesterday, last night. Yeah, a that's really true. good friend, Jackson Graham, who plays vibraphone. Um, mm. Oh my god, sounded so good in the space. So it's the so our house. The previous owners were artists also, and so they they added on this studio in 2012. It's got these 15 foot ceilings, hardwood floors. The whole like back wall is just windows, so you go into it and it just feels like. You're in this, actually. It has a long, long reverb time. Yeah. And I like recording in extreme spaces Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, forces, like the medium of the space forces the band to sort of change how how they would play uh, from, say, like a practice space or something. But but for us, yeah, I, I I think my main tenet is that it has to go really fast. Um, I think we get really suspicious when things take a long time. This is a multi-mic album, but it's mostly mixed in mono. I think we believe a lot in like unification and as you said, like decomplexification. I don't, I'm not a big fan of very detailed and dimensional recordings. Even though this has more than one mic. Yeah. Yeah. This does have more than one mic. There's multi-miking as I said, like Mm -hmm. it's, there's an assemblage of a mix Mm -hmm. actually, whereas the first album was literally just like one, (laughs) but uh, well, pretty much. Yeah. It's like, there were, there were a few overdubs there had to be, but uh, you know, this is still simple too, but yeah, I, I think that that recording has gotten to be overly dimensional. And it splits the mind in different directions. And I think we've lost like the ability to command attention in a very concerted way with Mm -hmm. modern production techniques. And so, yeah, yeah, we kind of just make our own methods. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's, yeah, it's nice. They're extremely stupid, but but they're but they're but they're good too. I mean, I, I I like I like what we do. Well, and again, like it's it's a huge step up from having to like set up and tear down every single day in the bathroom. Yeah, it's great to have things stay and we can just walk to them. But people will say like y'all are like lo-fi auteurs, but I always always like we're not lo-fi, like we're very hi-fi, like like fidelity is one of the most important things. Like we we don't edit, you know, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. 
that, that, that moment like, of capture together yeah yeah like the room the room mic is like 70 percent of the mix like that's right. that's very high fidelity that fidelity means faithfulness right i agree with you i i would recommend that anyone um has a good set of headphones to listen to this record that way too also out of a speaker on a dashboard of an old car <laughs> it's a an equally fantastic experience thank you thank you yeah and uh, how do you write? Is it fully collaborative or, or Lyra, are you the, I forget your term for your specific I'm, I'm, branded I'm Lyra, lyrics. I'm the lyricist. Lyricist. I'm the lyricist. Um, our, so typically what we do is Coffee will be on drums and I'll be on bass and we'll just play together until something emerges, usually within like a couple minutes. And if we hit upon something that we like, then we'll develop it. Um, just musically. And mm -hmm. if divine providence sees fit to endow me with a word or a phrase that I like, then sometimes words will happen on the spot. Otherwise, yeah. we'll write the song together and build it out. Um, Coffin will write guitar parts. What we've been really enjoying lately is emphasizing whatever bass parts I write with our Moog. So we'll have a Moog bass part oh, underneath right. to sort of, um, yeah, like, add some structure um, and undergirding to the bass. Cause I, I play like really trebly cause I like that it cuts through and then we'll just do whatever else we feel the song needs. And then I'll sit down and try to write something and, or a coffee like will offer a phrase or a keyword and I'll write around that. Mm -hmm. I'm the automatic writer. Uh, yeah. Where it's like, Hmm. How many songs do we write a year? I don't know. At least 40. Something, Between forty and sixty, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For this album, there was a there was a pool of, I don't know. I think it was about the same. Yeah. Yeah, but it was because, like, "Good Living Is Coming for You," for example, the song. I remember writing that out um, in our Austin practice space. Uh, we had the the music for it, and then I I took an, a walk. Mm -hmm. And I remember just like walking around the neighborhood, and then like all those words just like came out. And so that song, we rewrote, God, I don't know. Five times. Five times. Oh, really? It started out as this very, like, jangly sort of orange juice send-off. And um, we were just trying so hard to make that work. And it wasn't working. And so we rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. And then Caulfield had this really great idea to just, like, strip it down elementally. And, of course, I was pissed off because i was like oh my god we've done this so many times this will never work and what are you doing you're crazy you're mad and then it happened and it was great and then i was like okay you knew what had to be done and i did it because i was just so in it if you're writing 40 songs a year let's say do you work towards a record or do you just write and capture it no you can't work towards a record right right lira yeah no, no. i think it's it's more just following the 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 spark in the moment and then after you have a bunch of songs then you kind of put things together but we've never had an idea of like okay we have to write for a record i think if you have a strong purpose that directs you that's when writer's block comes at least for us mm -hmm. yeah all right well it looks like you have a pretty big tour the third prong of being a band writing recording and then touring how do you weigh recording and writing against or with 
touring and presenting these songs? Is it equally as important to you as touring taxing? Is it absolutely fun? Well, so we've only ever gone on tour once, and that was our first mm. Sweeping Promises tour. So we love playing shows. And when we were in Boston, we would play, you know, monthly. You know, we were very much a part of that live scene there. And so we had a bunch of different, you know, bands that we were in simultaneously. So playing live was a huge and still is, you know, like a huge part of our musical life. But touring, that that was the first time we'd ever done that. And so, yeah, we... Playing shows is like the public face of your writing. Mm-hmm. Re- the recordings are too. They face outward <laughs> and they articulate what happens when you're writing. But But shows is when you can kind of interface with the communities that are responding and emerging in your music. And, you know, it's generating ideas and talk. It's sort of the whole reason why you do it. Although I think we, I think, hmm, I'm very writing centric myself and I view a performance as like a, a symptom of the practice rather than like the progenitor, if that makes sense. And I'm, I think I'm more the opposite. Like I love performing and yeah, I, I okay. mean, I used to, that's what I studied, even though I wouldn't, I, I don't really identify as like a music school person because it was a liberal arts school. So, um, but I mean, I, it's still very much like I come from. I mean, we both come from backgrounds of performing and like you played in bands before I did. So yeah. music criticism doesn't exist now. So it's like hard to figure out what people actually think about your music. And like, it's sort of a black box, you know, when you really see your recordings. But when you play live for me, I think of myself as like a spy undercover and I get to see <laughs> how like the music actually works for other people who aren't ourselves. Maybe that's how I think about performance. It's like I'm like the spy who gets to see the actual like community mechanics of. <laughs> well, and I think that's the other thing about going on that first Sweeping Promises tour in 2021, because live performance was such a big part of our lives for so long, for at least as long as we were in Boston, which was eight years. So being able to play live again, and not only that, to be on tour was huge because it meant that we had this part of music life back again of you know, talking to people, playing with other bands, seeing other people on stage and enacting in this like very communal tradition that was, you know, ripped away from everybody for so long. So it it sure. had a very meaningful, like an added layer of, of meaningful weight to it. And so now I've, I kind of feel like touring is pretty, it's, it's kind of uh, conflicted for me because I feel like, you know, the story now is that's the only way that you make money as an artist. And we both have problems with that and with the whole structure of music, but that's another conversation. Yeah, we do mm-hmm. have problems with that. But yeah. su- <laughs> suffice it to say that touring is important for us because it means that we get to play live and see how these songs like emerge in a different um, milieu. Yeah. I want to go back really quick. You just, Caulfield, you said music criticism doesn't exist anymore. And I was just having a conversation with someone about that. And we were discussing the opposite. I actually subscribe to what you said, but there are so many music critics now. There's more than ever. But without sounding terribly pessimistic, it's all worthless. It isn't criticism. What what a traditional, useful criticism is. And um, I found that interesting that you said that. I don't, I don't know if you're sort of 
of that thought or that's a nice nuance i think that there i think you're right <laughs> that there have never been more dislocated critics who don't have an yeah. institution that can pay them and offer them the type of like perspective platform and protection for them to have like useful words now i think criticism has been mostly reduced to signal boosting like sure I like yeah. this thing, which makes sense. If you're not getting paid, you don't have an institution. You don't really have like a yeah a, a platform that's removed from the thing. Um, like I, I I do think the most generous thing you can do with your with your brain, maybe with <laughs> sticks and stones, basically, is to say I I like this thing, and here are some dynamics. And if like if you're similarly minded, you should check out this thing. But but yeah, you flattened criticism into basically recommendation. And yeah. I, I think that's really, really bad for bands. I've never met a band who thinks that's a good thing, you know? Um, and it, it, it sounds like you're going down a similar track of thought. And of course, you know, I've taken it personally a lot of my life, but I, I also trust myself enough to be like, yeah, it's not, it's really not that. My criticism of critis criticism now is that it's just vapid. And uh, I, it's fun for people to talk about music. I'm more interested in the history of criticism. Totally different subject, but um, I was just talking about that with someone, so I wanted to bring it up with you because you brought it up. Everyone's everyone suffers when you don't when you don't have rigorous thought. I do like that things have gotten more nice, and we have sort of like less edgy dudes uh, who mm -hmm. make arbitrary punching bags. But R.I.P. Vice. Yeah, but in the but in the history of criticism, like uh, ac you know, actually being critical, kind of like had had helped a lot of projects. Yeah, <laughs> that's what. We, yeah, you know, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> I can only imagine historically that's kind of the intention of it all, and it kept that world going around, you know, with some construction behind it. Um, Remember that philosopher I mentioned earlier who yeah. had his own living aid. Uh, yeah. Uh, his name is Bruno Latour, and he has a he has a kind of a famous piece in the humanities called "Has Criticism Run Out of Steam?" Basically, with the mm. argument that we should give up the mode of criticism. This is a big simplification, but because it's yeah, sure. negative, and we should find a more kind of productive or positive yeah. criticism. And I kind of think that that mindset sort of facetiously took over the environment 10 years ago but right. but really with just the just kind of lending credence to like institutions casualizing their writers or right. or just firing uh people and hollowing out their 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 edifices of of thought yes and we're, we uh sorry got off track of sweeping promises there for a second but um i don't know i feel like that's kind of a sweeping promise in itself is the idea of like i don't know streaming or the internet for example sort of leveling in its i think in its what the internet or what streaming would say is it, it levels the playing field for everybody but what it actually does is it makes the playing field less interesting yeah lowers the stakes yep it does yeah it does unfortunately and it may change because i think people will get creative and figure something out to make it at the very least more interesting um back to touring how do you t how do you play shows are you a three-piece are you a nine-piece we're so live we're a three-piece we have um a really good friend of ours spencer grala who we know from boston who is um just an incredibly talented musician in his own right and so he plays drums and mm. we yeah we just keep it super simple three of us in our 2014 honda odyssey 
Ooh, I love the Odyssey. Oh, it's a mm-hmm. great, it's a great vehicle. I go back and forth between the Sienna and the Odyssey, but currently Odyssey, wonderful. <laughs> you don't bring the Moog? Mm-mm, no sense. Or anything? Yeah, just cool. a power trio. Can't afford that. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's true. We really, yeah, I, we've been we've been dreaming of having a fourth member to be like a synth and guitar player to sort yeah. of fill out some of these arrangements that are on the record. And it, yeah, just, it, it just can't afford it right now. Right. Well, that just makes for a, a newer experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really want to see you guys live. I hope you're coming to Seattle. Oh, yeah. We are. Yeah. Great. I think it's in September. I will be here. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope to uh, see you. And if not, maybe cross paths. I may be even coming to Lawrence in July. So maybe I'll oh bother you. Oh, something. my God. We'll be here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I might go see my drum people. Um, I play drums and I use CNC drums. Oh. So, those are my people. The Cardwells. Yeah. Ryan yeah. Ryan Pope. Do you know Ryan? Yep. Yeah. He's our neighbor. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope to see you out there. If you travel, travel safe. And um, congrats again on this record. It's radical. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for uh, for talking to us. Of course. It's great. And I'm actually going to get in my car and listen to your record on the way to my studio because I want to rip something off. You'll never know. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care of yourselves and thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs>